welcome to Technology and Security. TS is a podcast exploring the intersections of emerging technologies and national security. I'm your host, Dr. Mia Hamanderi. I'm the inaugural director of the Emerging Technology Program at the United States Studies Center, and we're based in the University of Sydney. My guest today is Julie Inman Grant. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Mia. Julie Inman Grant is the Australian eSafety Commissioner. She has more than 30 years' experience working in technology, public policy, and online safety. She's worked for Microsoft, Twitter, and Adobe, as well as for government advisory and regulatory roles across the United States, Australia, and in the Asia-Pacific. She is an incredibly influential voice in technology, regulation, and governance in Australia as well as globally, and her career has been bookended by government service in the US and in Australia. We're coming to you today from the lands of the Gadigal people. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, here and wherever you're listening. We acknowledge their continuing connection to land, sea and community and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Julie, the eSafety has a huge mandate. Can you briefly take us through the scope of your organisation and its work? Right. Well, um, nobody's handed me a card saying you need to regulate the entire internet internet for a range of harms. But that's uh, effectively what we're up against. And it's not just the technology companies um, and the search engines and the app stores. We're also trying to regulate human behavior to a certain degree. Um, And the fact that people are weaponizing platforms to um, deliberately cause harm to others. Um, so that's a pretty big mandate, no matter how you um, no matter how you scope it or scale it. And I don't think any agency can be proactively moder- moderating the internet, and that's not how we were set up or what we're meant to do. We're here to serve as a safety net for Australians, um, particularly with our regulatory schemes, um, when things fall through the cracks, uh, which they inevitably do because even with humans in the loop, uh, content moderation algorithms are very imperfect. You've just highlighted one of those, uh, content moderation, but 2023 is shaping up to be huge in new technology development as well as the tech policy space. Uh, What are you watching most closely? Right. Well, obviously, um, generative AI has come on the scene very, very rapidly. And I think what concerns me about that is we've been talking about bias and algorithms for quite a long time and in AI and in large language models. Um, but I don't think we were really prepared with how quickly the democratization of this uh, technology would be. And it feels like we're not learning the lessons from Web 1.0 and Web 2. Um, and we're back to moving fast and breaking things um, rather than moving mindfully. You have written that um, you recently wrote, we're back to moving fast and breaking things rather than taking a human-centered safety by design approach. You were obviously talking about GPT-4 there. I guess a follow-on from that is how would you like to see digital guardrails embedded before AI tools like this are released? Right. Well, I don't think we're ever going to be able to anticipate every single risk and harm that there is. Um, One thing I've learned um, over my 30 years is that human beings um, have ingenuity and they'll be able to find creative ways to misuse technology. Um, But it is up to the companies that are developing, designing, and deploying this technology to erect the digital guardrails, to assess some of the potential 
risks and to try and engineer out misuse. Um, but instead, you are seeing this race to be out, out there first. And, um, you know, things we've already seen go off the rails. It's pulled back and they're put in retrospectively. And this is the whole principle of safety by design is, you know, embedding safety protections at the front end as a forethought rather than an afterthought when things do go wrong. Yeah, thank you. That's a really good way of explaining it. You are a bit of a rarity with decades of experience in both the technology world and the regulatory space. How does this affect your perspective or approach? Right. Well, I do wonder um, how regulators, particularly as we're entering a much more complex environment with algorithms and um, and AI um, and uh, quantum and even things like um, neurotechnology uh, coming onto the scene, if you don't really understand how technology companies think, um, what is driving them, um, what the real limitations are, I think it would be very, very hard to regulate um, this this industry not having that foundational understanding um, or only taking, say, a big stick approach uh, to regulation. Um, I'm trying to walk that fine line between um, the carrot and the stick and collaborating to the extent we can with the industry. Um, you know, I think we are aligned in certain areas. Uh, none of these companies want abusive material on their platforms or harmful conduct being enabled. So where we can actually collaborate and work informally, that actually gives us the best outcomes and the most expeditious ones. So to, to give you an example, with our cyberbullying scheme, uh, we've got a 90% success rate through um cooperative um, engagement with the sector when when the uh, the um, cyberbullying content meets the threshold. Uh, we'd say the same thing w- uh, around our image-based abuse scheme. We've got a 90% success rate, and almost none of this um, illegal and harmful content is based in Australia or hosted in Australia because we've had such strong laws in place for so many years. I wanted to ask you about the legal notices that your office recently issued uh, to large tech companies to answer questions about how they're tackling on online child sexual abuse. Uh, right. Well, <laughs> we've been asking some of the, these companies for six years um, what technologies they're using, on what services. We've obviously been working with um, our hotline partners, such as the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in, in the U.S., to explain some of the anomalies and numbers. So to give you an idea, back in um, 2021, there were 29 million instances of child sexual abuse uh, reported to NECMEC. Uh, 27 million of that came from Meta. Um, but something like um, 40,000, I think, from Microsoft and 160 from Apple. Now, you can't tell me that with billions of handsets out there, all connected to iCloud and iMessage, that there were only 160 instances of child sexual exploitation. So we tried to have these conversations, um, and we couldn't get the answers that we needed to form a full picture. And so in um, working with the government to shape the Online Safety Act, uh, we said we really need these tools to compel greater transparency. Um, because we really don't understand the scale and scope of what we're dealing with. And I think um, we got a lot of pushback uh, through this um, initial process. It was very uncomfortable for the companies because nobody's been able to lift the hood and really shine the sunlight where it needs to be. Um, but it, it, it showed a lot of interesting things. 
Um, and it is embarrassing for some of them because they've been putting put, putting forward or signing up to voluntary principles to keep children safe online. And what this showed is they're not living up to those principles. That's one thing to have standards too, but to be able to um, enforce them or, you know, to ensure compliance is, is another matter altogether. I want to talk about alliances. So normally we ask our intelligence and security leaders about nation-state alliances. But how do you see technology, digital infrastructure and the regulation of so- social harms impacting specifically the Australia and the United States alliance, but also more broadly? Right. Well, as someone who worked in uh, Washington, D.C., kind of um, at the beginning of the tech policy um, movement um, and having shaped Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, it was a very different time. The companies that were around, uh, Microsoft was there, Novell, um, AOL, Prodigy, CompuServe, very different um, environment. And we truly believed in industry at the time. If the internet was overregulated and overtaxed, it wouldn't reach its full potential. Um, Unfortunately, you're seeing a lot more polarization, I would say, in in U.S. politics, which, you know, the debate here around online safety has been very robust, but it's largely been uh, bipartisan and hasn't been tainted by politics. Um, you know, the Australian par- Parliament decided to legislate based on minimizing online harm. But you've got, you know, we're, in the U.S., they're talking about conservative voices, about progressive voices. It makes it very difficult to actually um, arrive at a consensus on um, how or whether to regulate the internet. And of course, so many of these companies have are American companies that have, uh, you know, generated tremendous innovation and and growth um, of these industries. So um, I was just at the White House last week. Um, I was was at at the Senate and talking to members of Congress last week. Um, The U.S. is very interested in what we're doing, um, and they're very interested to see that we have not only a regulatory role, but we have a coordination and education and prevention role. And I think that's the type of thing that they're looking at. They they like the, the, the concept of safety by design um, because it's understandable to people. Um, you know, we had to legislate seat belts and airbags and safety features in cars over a half century ago. Of course, we have safety standards around food so we're not making people sick uh, or consumer protection laws. I think the question is why do you have this technological technological exceptionalism, um, particularly when the internet is becoming almost an essential utility. And um, we're seeing more and more evidence that um, unbridled access um, to the internet without certain limitations or um, without the guardrails in preventing harm can be very damaging to um, mental health and well-being. How does the Australian approach to technology harms compare to global regulation? And I guess you, you, you mentioned it just before about, you know, the new uh, safety commissioners in Ireland and Fiji. But I guess more broadly, we are, well, you are the first um, e-safety commissioner globally. What does that mean for Australia? And how does that mean our regulation is comparative to other countries? 
Um, well, it was really interesting um, being part of Australia's official delegation to the UN Commission on the Status of Women. The focus this year was on cracking the code and around uh, what we call technology-facilitated gender-based violence. Um, for shorthand, we call it technology-facilitated abuse, or TFA. Um, and I was in a number of fascinating conversations, but so many people from around the world were talking about the types of things they would like to do or we should do. And I was able to actually stand up there and say, we're actually doing those things. We have a program called eSafety Women that um, helps uh, women who are experiencing coercive control or technology facilitated abuse as, as an extension of the coercion and control um, in domestic and family violence situations. I was able to say we have um, a program called uh, Women in the Spotlight where we're providing social media self-defense training for, for journalists, businesswomen, um, for politicians, so that they um, know how to pr protect themselves online and so that they aren't silenced, um, but they're engaging in protective behaviors. We were able to say we have a legislative um, image-based abuse scheme and serious adult, serious adult cyber abuse scheme, so we can tackle things like doxing and uh, cyber stalking uh, from a regulatory perspective. Do you think technology is imbued with the cultural values of the context in which it was created? And what does that mean for companies that operate globally? Yeah, having worked for three companies that are um, American companies, uh, I remember having conversations in particular um, with folks at Twitter um, because it was you know, designed as that free speech um, platform uh, um, you know, around the world and that the First Amendment doesn't exist anywhere. And even the First Amendment um, has limitations when um, harm is created. Um, and so many of the arguments were, uh, as I watched how women and those with interse intersectional factors, uh, whether those with disabilities or LGBTQI+, um, or Indigenous Australians were being disproportionately targeted, we know that those groups are twice as likely to receive online hate vis-a-vis -vis the, the entire population. Um, that's resulted in the silencing of voices, um, so the undermining of free speech. And that's precisely what targeted online abuse is designed uh, to do. And we're seeing more and more cases of um, what is often referred to as gender disinformation um, or uh, persistent uh, gendered trolling, where um, it's like death by a thousand cuts. There may be there may be uh, a few um, elevated tweets or posts that um, are delivering direct threats of harm, but often it's about undermining a woman's credibility, um, her intelligence, uh, focusing on her appearance, her supposed virtue or her fertility, not about the substance of what she's done or what she's, what she's said. So it manifests very differently against women than it does men. Do you think that varies from culture to culture? Well, we certainly do see um, in countries where um, there are autocracies um, or there isn't the same level of gender inequality um, that the, the gendered online abuse can be um, much more vicious and have much more serious implications or repercussions um, for a woman in her everyday life.
So you do see these online harms spilling into uh, real world uh, dangerous scenarios. Thank you. It's a topic really close to my heart. So interested to hear your thoughts. What do you see as Australia's tech strengths as a nation from a user and an innovation standpoint? Um, well, I'm sure everybody holds uh, up um, Atlassian and uh, Canva as um, two really important jewels in the Australian crown. Um, but I do think the, uh, the mindset in Australia is, is, is quite innovative. I mean, you see so many companies using Australia as a testbed uh, because we're early adopters of technology. Um, you, I guess you could, you could sort of um, look at the differences um, between you know, what created uh, a Silicon, Silicon Valley uh, versus a Silicon Beach. Um, but I think we're definitely punching above our weight um, on, the, on the world stage when it comes to technology. We have a world-leading e-safety office. And I I asked you a little bit before about, you know, a responsible AI network. And I I had a question in here about building out a responsible tech community ecosystem. Um, And I'd be interested in your thoughts. And I I know that you're interested in moving beyond networks and actually um, moving to action too, not just just that. But it, it feels in many ways like that community engagement and driving from the community needs to start first. So how would you see how would you see that Australia can kind of continue to engage in responsible tech? Well, I'd, I'd like to see organizations like the Technology Council of Australia um, really taking embracing initiatives like safety by design. Um, where there are a set of principles that we agreed to with um, technology companies and risk assessments. You know, I wish uh, VCs and investment companies, when they're they're funding um, new startups, would um, use due diligence clauses and checklists that you can get these um, early stage companies thinking about how their technology might be misused. I've got to give credit to the Australian banks um, to, to really move on financial safety by design um, when it was brought to them that um, their platforms, their online banking systems were being weaponized uh, through microaggressions, microaggressions, particularly when formal partners were sending over child support payments. Um, and Westpac was the first, and they started by um, applying our safety by design framework and AI and machine learning to try and uh, detect and prevent these. And now you've had every major bank Uh, follow in its footsteps. Um, So, uh, you know, I think that's great. I I would like to see us leaning in more on safety and responsible and ethical tech and and showing people how we're doing it. Principled frameworks are great, but they're only effective if they're implemented. Yeah, absolutely. And you hit on something there that I think is really important. It's a bit tangential, but you talked about banks. And I feel like so often when we talk about digital or tech, we're really we're talking about tech companies, but actually so much of our data and so much of the digital infrastructure is provided by a range of industry that don't fall into this traditional tech. Most companies now need huge tech departments and they need innovation. So I think it's it's a really important point and I guess must be a challenge for the eSafety office to get across online harms that maybe come from outside of you know traditional tech spaces. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, and, you know, some might even argue that, you know, the banks are are sort of moving online and may, you know, they actually already are competing to a certain degree with some of these um, um, online payment systems, whether you're talking Apple Pay or Google Pay, or I think Libra was a failed um, experiment. But um, 
I, I think you, you, you get the picture. We're going to see more convergence. And I also think we're going to see much more invasive forms of technology. I mean, we've already seen that with um, things like drones flying over safe houses or the fact that surveillance devices are so small as to be imperceptible. So in some technology-facilitated abuse situations, um, there, may be, um, there may be surveillance devices um, under shoes, in prams, in teddy bears, um, or gifted to a child uh, through spyware on a phone. Um, I was just freaked out by a talk um, I heard on brain transparency. Um, obviously, there are some tremendous sort of uh, gains we could get with um, uh, neurotechnology. Um, and I gave the scenario of you know a truck driver driving and starting to fall asleep at the wheel, something that can you know, wake him up when that happens could help minimize um, you know, tragic car and truck accidents. Um, but when you start, um, if employers start using it to monitor productivity um, or efficiency, you know, what, the brain should be the, the last bastion <laughs> of, of invasive technology, but it's, companies are starting to use these technologies now. And so I think we need to get ahead of what this actually means um, for us as humans. Thank you. I have a question in there about what, what excites and terrifies you about technology. And you've kind of answered both in one question. Well, I think the, the other thing to be mindful of, and this goes back to safety by design, um, I remember doing our first tech trends and challenges brief around deep fakes. We couldn't get any of the mainstream media to pick up the story on, on what deep fakes and what they might mean or how it might be misused. Now you, you, you don't pick up an IT reg without seeing something about deep fakes. But we know that deep fake detection technologies are way behind the democratization um, of, of the technologies. And we've just seen this with chat. Um, GPT-4. Uh, I was just listening to uh, Nicholas Thompson of The Atlantic talking about how they were starting to red team after things went off the rails. But why weren't they red teaming beforehand? Bef before it was unleashed to the public? And so you can't always let that genie out of the bottle um, once you're there. And we just really need to put more of a focus on technology companies um, being responsible and assessing and mitigating the risk that they can at the design, deployment, and development process. We're about to move to a segment, but I wanted to get one last question in. There's a debate in Australia about data localization, and I wonder if you could share your thoughts on data localization and security. This is the challenge of regulating the internet. The internet is global, laws are local. Um, so we, we need to find a way to ensure that, um, <laughs> that we're not undermining the, the efficiencies and the benefits um, that, that cloud computing um, provides um, in, with questions around data localization. Um, if you have data stored in every country, then that sort of invalidates um, you know, some of the, the the model. So um, I don't have an answer for that. Of, of course, after the Patriot Act, you saw a lot um, more focus on that. Of course, any national government has has a right to demand that kind of sovereignty. Um, but over time, it might erode some of the, the benefits of uh, this of distributed network. 
So I wanted to go to a segment we have called Emerging Tech for Emerging Leaders. You've held some leadership roles during big tech developments. Can you give insight into how you have led others to navigate major tech changes in your career? <laughs> I was just thinking about um, uh, 1999 and, you know, being terrified at what was going to happen with the year 2000 and, um, you know, trying to uh, encourage people uh, within Microsoft to, uh, you know, to really take it seriously. Of course, we didn't know if it was going to be a tech arm again or, or, or not. Nothing happened. Um, you know, again, I, I think what I'm trying to do um with e-safety is to make sure that we are one step ahead, that we're looking 18 months ahead, where we're seeing the technology paradigm shifts and um, you know what's coming. Um, in another example would be uh, immersive technologies, and and what what do um, you know full body haptic suits and hyper realistic um, you know headsets mean for um, online harm. In the metaverse, um, clearly, if you're experiencing online harassment or sexual assault, it's going to feel more visceral, more extreme, more real. And part of my role is to keep needling the companies to to say, safety by design now. I mean, how are you going to deal with these issues? Just having a blocking and muting button is not going to help you in the inter- in the metaverse. It's this is going to be happening in private spaces in real time. So how are you going to mitigate those risks and harms? You said that you look at those technologies kind of, I think, 12 to 18 months out. Are there other technologies kind of akin to the ones you've just mentioned that you're thinking about that, you know, leaders of today and tomorrow really need to know about? Well, this seems obvious to say now that um, generative AI has really, again, come on the scene. Um, and, and you know, we've been talking, we've been all been talking about AI for a long time. And, of course, we see AI being used in things like content moderation, where that can be really uh, a good and positive thing, um, as long as there are humans in the loop, um, vis-a-vis recommender systems and um, harmful algorithms. And we just put out a tech trends uh, brief on that. But I do think we need to be thinking about quantum, and we do need to be thinking about neurotechnology. Um, you know, everything is going to be... Um, you know, IoT devices, you know, cars um, are becoming more like computers. So everything around us, we need to think about um, how we prevent harm and how we harness benefits. And uh, I, I'm not sure that that's still at the heart or the core of the technology design and development process today. Thank you. What are some of the key transferable skills as someone that has worked in both technology and security or regulatory roles? Well, I think you have to have a, a degree of tech, technical fluency, but also understand um, frameworks. I think you have to understand how uh, human nature um, uh, as well. Um, so one of the things I really tried to do with our investigative team. So we need to hire investigators that have significant technology skills um, and can do um, OSINT, and, uh, but also also people who, who can be compassionate and can listen and can help because um, people come to us in a great deal of dis- distress and delivering that compassionate citizen service is really important. Um, you know, because there has been no other online harms regulator, we've had to 
really selectively hire people with a whole broad range of experiences and train them on the job. TikTok bans are a pretty major topic in the US at the moment. And obviously there's a distinction to be made here between TikTok on government devices and more broadly. But legislation is going ahead in the US to make to make it possible for the president to ban TikTok in the United States. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are that um, Minister O'Neill has a report before her and is going to make a determination about what she thinks is, is right for the broader populace. Uh, you know, the way I'm engaging with TikTok is around um, a range of online harms. Uh, like it or lump it, you know, so many teens and tweens um, are on TikTok um, and it is a cultural juggernaut. And I think we need to um, make sure we're understanding um, how the content and influence is, you know, influencing our, our, our young people over time. And we've just issued um, a legal notice to TikTok um, asking them about their approach to detecting child sexual exploitation um, grooming, sexual extortion, and harmful algorithms. And I guess in terms of thinking about how we regulate um, in the future, we're giving a lot of thought to what are the what are the skills we need and the technologies we need to, to regulate. We're going to look at outcomes based. I don't think we're ever going to be able to break that black box. I think that's that's un, unrealistic. There, there just aren't the people out there who have experience in doing technical audits. Um, around um, algorithms. So we're going to have to find um, creative and smart ways um, to understand what's actually happening under the hood and um, and, and make sure that um, these companies are are not building algorithms solely for, for engagement, that they're using the technology and nudges to detect harmful harmful content and aren't sending people down not only a rabbit hole but a death spiral. Um, and are using those technologies um, for good. Um, my colleague Tom and I recently published a piece looking at trust and distrust in technology. Um, do you see that tech companies build and maintain user trust and what sorts of things can erode or damage that trust? Well, it takes years and years to build trust, probably a minute or a single data breach um, to break that trust. And I, I think about... Um, Zoom as a company, um, how they they scaled so beautifully um, at the beginning of the pandemic. I think in December 2019, they had 10 million um, daily active users and it moved up to 300 million by April. Um, but then you started to see Zoom bombing and um, security and privacy uh, limitations and uh, entire school systems and government agencies, national government started to pull out. Um, and that, that actually gave um, Microsoft and Apple and others the opportunity to really uh, gain traction in that space over time because they, they had built, built that uh, level of trust. So how do you actually measure that? Um, I think the level of trust in technology companies writ large is probably lower than I've ever seen it. And, you know, I, that's saying something because I worked um, for Microsoft in Washington, D.C. during the midst of the antitrust trial when um, whenever I told people where I worked, they'd say, you know, I get the 
evil empire diatribe. I also worked for Twitter at a time when they really weren't um, doing the op optimal work around safety and ISIS was proliferating. So I've been working for companies at crisis moments and I, I, I don't think I've ever seen, and we're seeing a, a sea change and really tectonic shifts happening from technology companies being really glorified to vilified um, in many in many ways and governments are starting to act and they're starting to regulate um, but across the board not just for online harms but in the competition space in the consumer space privacy and security space uh, obviously with disinformation so there are a lot of tricky issues that these companies need to navigate but they they need to do a better job in ensuring that their their technologies are used as tools rather than weapons. The US and China appear to be in a race for AI dominance, and we're seeing tech decoupling in some areas between the US and China. What are some of the, the tensions from your perspective, and where might that leave users? I mean, you've seen, um, I just met um, Doreen Bogdan-Martin, who is the first female Secretary General of the ITU in its 158-year history. Um, that chair was controlled by China um, before uh, Doreen, who's who's an American, took the role. And you know, this this controls telecoms and internet standards. Um, and so China is really good at playing in these standards bodies. Um, and um, and you know. The, they're good at tapping into um, smaller markets, as as we saw happening in the Pacific Islands. Um, they're a um, you know quite formidable uh, competitor in the technology space. I'm gonna jump to a segment here. It's called Eyes and Ears. What have you been reading, listening to, or watching lately that might be of interest to our audience? Well, I wish I could read more for pleasure. Over Christmas, I read uh, Lessons in Chemistry, uh, which I really, really enjoyed. Uh, right now, I'm reading Dr. Kristen Ferguson's uh, book about head and heart leadership. Um, and so, so much of it uh, resonates with me, but she's also a wonderful storyteller and an authentic leader herself. I get from that that you don't have a lot of downtime, um, but what do you do when you disconnect and wind down? Um, I try and spend time with my three kids um, uh, and my dog and my husband. Um, I, I'm fortunate to live um, near national parks, um, so I like to, to get out in nature um, and trail run and just uh, decompress. And, I, you know, I love catching up with friends and uh, cooking is where I, I um, am able to exercise what creativity I have. Sounds fabulous. We've got a segment uh, called Need to Know, which is our final segment. Um, is there anything I didn't ask you that would have been great to cover? Just that we want to reach more Australians um, with our resources and our services um, to help them when online abuse happens to them. And um, that is through esafety.gov.au. Excellent. Um, Julie, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. I hope I made sense. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Technology and Security. I've been your host, Dr. Mia Hamanderi. I'm the inaugural director of the Emerging Tech Program at the United States Studies Centre, based at the University of Sydney. 
If there was a moment you enjoyed today or a question you have about the show, feel free to tweet me at M-I-A-H underscore H-E or send an email to the address in the show notes. You can find out more about the work we do on our website, also linked in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this episode and we'll see you soon.